Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Good morning, Jim. Welcome to another episode of The Other Hand. One of the things that I want to get into straight away this morning is a discussion of the piece that you recently put up on our Substack website discussing Ireland's cost of living crisis and the government's response to it. You certainly in that piece, I think, please correct me if I'm wrong, excoriated the government for doing what it's done. And I, I got a strong sense that you felt that it was wasted money. Uh, we, of course, have got that sort of thing going on here in the UK at the moment, in which, in a very different way, but overlapping, the government here is trying to help people with their energy bills going forward. We have a very different energy market compared to the one that you've got in Ireland, but there are there is a big step change in energy bills coming here. And inflation, as we have discussed on this podcast many times, is fast becoming a big economic as well as political hot potato. Lots of chatter around the behavior of interest rates, bond markets and all other asset prices affected by this. Because the one thing that we should always be aware of on this economic, financial and political podcast is that when we're talking about something like inflation, it affects absolutely everything, not just home energy bills. But talk us through the piece that you uh, put up on our site and indeed the reaction that we've had to it. Because unsurprisingly, lots of people have got in touch with us since that piece, most of them very supportive, all of them very polite, or at least most of them. Uh, but it's quite clear that it's an interest close to many of our listeners and readers' hearts. Yeah. Hi, Chris. 
Um, I listened to a lot of the debate here over the weekend in media and stuff about the cost of living crisis. And indeed, uh, one of the Sunday newspapers had a poll on Sunday um, suggesting that the cost of living had now overtaken housing as the issue of public concern. And indeed, COVID-19 has been has moved significantly down the table as an issue of concern. Um, I did a local radio interview in Limerick yesterday morning where I was talking about the whole cost of living crisis and what government could or could not do. But I was struck by the texts and calls that were coming into the show, basically excoriating the government over this problem, saying the government has got to do something about it. And it just got me thinking about, uh, you know, the role of government in the state. I mean, should our government be stepping in at this juncture to address this cost of living crisis? Uh, and indeed, you know, we would have lived through cost of living crises in the past where, you know, government does not basically get involved. Um, and it it just I, I looked at the, the cost of living issues and, you know, we know that headline inflation is running at over five and a half percent here at the moment. And if you look at the contributors to that, it is by and large energy related. It is diesel prices, petrol prices, electricity, um, gas bills and so on. Uh, housing rents up by 8.4%. So housing and energy really are the big drivers. And um, I was just looking at all of these suggestions that have been made by government to try and intervene to help people. And I was asking the question, you know, is it the role of government to step in um, at every opportunity to address every sort of problem that faces everybody? And I went on to say that there is obviously a precedent created for this over the last 10 or 12 years. You know, we had the significant intervention by the government in the banking crisis. We've had a significant intervention by government over the last couple of years in relation to COVID-19. And um, it was it was interesting. I, I just made the point about the intervention in the banking crisis that different people have different views on uh, the wisdom of actually doing what the Irish government did at the time. And I think nobody can sort of state categorically that the government did the right thing or the wrong thing, because if government had not intervened in the banking crisis here in some way, well, the banking system basically would have collapsed. And without a banking system, an economy cannot function. Uh, but I, I didn't express a view one way or the other as to whether I thought I thought that intervention was good, bad or indifferent. Um, I just merely stated that different people have different views on it. But of course, um, I got one email response overnight, um, basically saying I was supportive of that government intervention in the banking system. And that probably harked back to my days as an economist in the banking sector. I left Bank of Ireland um, under a little bit of a cloud 22 years ago in 20, uh, sorry, in 2000, okay? Um, to suggest that 22 years later, um, a past career uh, would have that sort of influence on the way I try to critically analyze things um, is, is bizarre. You know, I've moved on from Bank of Ireland and banking and I wish the person who sent that email in would move on as well. But anyway, that's an aside. Um, but the, the other, I guess, strong message that came across from the responses is that, uh, you know, governments are responsible for this crisis, that this cost of living crisis, that basically it is all going back to 
the massive quantitative easing that has occurred over the last 10 or 12 years. That that's what's causing all of the inflation now. Um, I, I was making the point in my piece that the drivers of inflation at the moment are both supply side and demand side led. You know, on the supply side, we've had a massive supply side shock over the last couple of years as a result of COVID. We have serious shipping difficulties around the world. The cost of transport has gone up dramatically. We've seen natural gas and oil prices rise dramatically uh, for different reasons, but you know a lot of it to do with politics. And of course, that's all the supply side. And on the demand side, of course, after a couple of years of significant restrictions and the building up of personal savings, uh, nothing really to do with quantitative easing. We have this repressed demand coming back into the system. And when repress, a rebound in demand meets limited supply, prices are only going to go up in one direction. So the person that basically said in the email that all of this was down to quantitative easing, I think, ignores what has happened over the last couple of years. It's not quite as black and white. And indeed, he accused us of not joining the dots in our podcast and that we could we should stand back and take a sort of a broader, more philosophical look at the role of money and banking in our economy. And of course, he brought in a little piece about Bitcoin and had a slight swipe at you in relation to that. Uh, but, you know, overall, I guess the question I was really asking was, you know, is it necessary or is it appropriate for government to intervene in a crisis like this, to spend a lot of money without achieving very much, I would have thought. Um, I think in terms of priorities and the opportunity cost involved in spending this kind of money, trying to support people through cost of living, um, you look at the implications of that for future taxation, for the provision of health services, the provision of education and so on. So um, in, in an environment of limited resources, you can't do everything Government has got to prioritise. And I'm just not convinced that this sort of micro intervention to address a cost of living crisis that has, in my view, very little, if anything, to do with the Irish government um, is not the way to go. But that is that is the way government is going. And over the next few days, we will see um, an announcement of a significant um, bundle of measures. It is interesting to ask the question, should they be doing it? And I think the answer is, it all depends. And that is the only honest answer one can give to most economic questions. And if I look at what it depends on at the moment, I think the answer is that they probably shouldn't be doing it from an economic perspective, but I understand the politics of it. I think it makes political sense, but it doesn't make much economic sense. And ultimately, I do wonder about the political consequences of this, because I think we're in an environment whereby we've been lulled into a false sense of financial security by the fact that interest rates and government borrowing rates in particular have been zero negative for so long that we have what we consider almost subconsciously to be free money, because it has been free. And we've been able to borrow with impunity for a long period of time now, at least the government has. But that's not going to continue forever. And we see today and yesterday and the day before, government bond yields are moving up. And that the, just for a, a, an interesting factoid, the, the, the world stock of negative yielding bonds, which is, comprises mostly government bonds, um, is at its lowest level since 2015, nearly seven years. That's because their prices have fallen and their yields, their interest rates have gone up. So this era of free money looks, for the moment at least, to be coming to an end. 
10-year rates in the States are flirting with the psychologically important level of 2%. That's not a lot when you think about 7% inflation, but it is still a lot higher than they have been for quite some period of time. If we've got used to that era of free money, and this is where what we think is likely to continue, then urging the government to borrow to alleviate the cost of living crisis makes sense. If you think that there is a risk that this era is coming to an end, it makes far less sense. And I think that was your economic financial point, because the good point that you made, or one of the many good points that you made, was about opportunity cost. Because this will mean higher taxes in the future, or it will mean less money for the priorities that we know that we have of things like health and education and housing. These are trade-offs, these are choices that we have to make. And one of the things that we know we're not very good at these days is explicitly making these trade-off based choices that we want everything from the magic money tree. It just doesn't exist. Now, this has the practical consequence that we're talking about. There's a big theoretical discussion going on on the pages of the New York Times at the moment, Jim, believe it or not, where they are lauding the success, this particular article I read over the weekend, of modern monetary theory, which speaks precisely to this point about the magic monetary magic money tree, which is what I call MMT. They call it modern monetary theory. I call it the magic money tree. So you can imagine, therefore, what I do think about it. Um, it's all a load of nonsense, which is the, the branch of economic theorists that said the governments can borrow for as long as you like to spend on whatever you like, but with the proviso until inflation bites. Well, it is biting, so you've got to stop borrowing, even in their crazy world of magic money trees. And I think MMT has demonstrably failed. It's, it's practical uh, experiment, not, not least in the United States. So I agree with you. I think that it, it makes very little economic sense in this very dangerous environment. And it's about time that we grew up as, a, as peoples, both in Britain and in Ireland, and explicitly started making choices. What do you want to spend your money on? Do you want to spend it on alleviating people's energy bills? Do you want it to spend it on hospitals? Do you want to spend it on housing? Because you can't have it all. And I think that's the, 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 the key point. And if anybody says that you can, they, I think, come at it from one of two angles or maybe both. One is that you can just print the money. And you know what I think about that. I've just spoken about that. The other is, of course, our old favorite, which is possibly the, uh, the Sinn Féin approach, shall we call it, which is that you can tax people. You can tax the rich in order to be able to pay for it. That's another form of the magic money tree, in my opinion, because the, the number of rich people out there who are taxable is vanishingly small. You, won't be, you, know, you can raise taxes as much as you like and you will not get the revenues that you think that you will. That's a different debate. But it'll, it'll make people feel good. Well, if you think that just raising taxes is a way of making feel good, and that's a good enough reason to do it. Well, those, those who are not affected will feel good. Yeah, well, maybe that, that's, I think, uh, a different political dynamic. I think that's called class warfare, isn't it? It is indeed. So, yeah, so I, so I agree with you. What is really interesting, though, is, is the response that we got to your piece, which was extensive, Loads of tweets, loads of emails, comments on our website. Um, and it clearly is a, a topic dear to people's hearts. And it's, it's going to run and run, Jim, because the inflation dynamic is definitely there. Inflation is going to go higher everywhere before it falls. And the, the, the fact is, we have absolutely no idea what it will be doing. Through We know what it's going to be doing over the next few months. But beyond that, for me, it's just as likely that inflation could start to fall away as it's going to rise, because one of the big, dirty secrets of economics, contrary to what an awful lot of economists tell us, is that we have no agreed theory of what actually causes inflation. 
The only honest answer that we have when asked the question, what causes inflation, going back to something I said earlier on, is it all depends. It could be the demand side of the economy. It could be the supply side of the economy. It could be because central banks printing too much money. It could be because the government isn't taxing enough and spending too much. It could be any combination of all of these, or it could be something completely different, a commodity price shock, for instance, followed by other things. So we're not 100% sure what's causing the current inflation. We've got the factors that you described, which is the supply shock, the demand shock. We're not quite sure what the weights are. Is it 50-50? Is it 60-40? Supply versus demand or whatever. We haven't got actually properly defined answers to those questions. So I think what happens next to inflation and therefore what happens next to interest rates is an open question. But if you listen to somebody called Lord Jim O'Neill, in the British Houses of Parliament yesterday, berating the Bank of England for not having interest rates significantly higher than they are at the moment, maybe as high as 3-4%, I guess, from what he was saying. You'd think that economists have a very good idea of A, what is causing the current inflation, and B, what the right policy response is. Because as always with economics, there are alternative views. Professor Simon Ren-Lewis of Oxford University wrote something yesterday saying that European central banks, your ECB, my Bank of England are about to make a huge mistake if they jack interest rates up a lot because inflation, he thinks, will fall away towards the end of the year, that the growth won't be there. And as you know, I have sympathy for this because I have a a rule of thumb when it comes to forecasting the European economy, which is that it perennially will always disappoint you. It's been a, a rule of thumb that served me very well in my forecasting career. So I would be willing to bet a small amount of money that through the second half of this year, economic growth in Europe disappoints, inflation starts to fall away, and by this time next year, we'll be speculating about interest rate cuts if they've managed to get interest rates up a lot. So I think that the more they raise interest rates this year, the bigger the policy mistake that they will be making. But but that's my view, and I know you've got a slightly different one. I, I, I was interested yesterday evening, um, Patrick Honahan, the former governor of the Central Bank of Ireland and an, an eminent Irish economist, uh, basically expressed approval at the comments made by Simon Ren Lewis. So uh, I, I, I think that that is an interesting perspective. Um, one of the things, or at least a couple of the emails we got, um, I think go back to the realms of conspiracy theory where the whole quantitative easing program over the last 10 or 12 years is an official plot to basically transfer money from the poor to the wealthy. Um, And I I have to say, you know, I I struggle with that sort of conspiracy theory because the reality is that over the last decade, um, in the absence of quantitative easing, um, I really believe the economic environment would have been very different, would have been much more difficult uh, the whole euro area would potentially have fallen apart. I think there could have been a massive increase in unemployment. And, um, you know, that would have hit um, workers very, very hard. Um, so the, the, the notion that this is a policy just designed to transfer wealth from the poor to the wealthy just doesn't resonate with me. Um, and I, OK, I guess when we studied economics many years ago, the notion of quantitative easing was a little bit pie in the sky. And um, I, I think a lot of us would have been influenced by um, the monetary theory of inflation, whereas, you know, where inflation is always caused by too much money in circulation. So we would have been uneasy with this sort of massive 
monetary easing or pumping money supply into the system. But in the circumstances that have prevailed over the last 10 or 12 years after the great financial crash, was there any other alternative? And if 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 this policy hadn't been pursued, how bad would things have turned out? So, but here we go again, you know. Yeah. Whole... We, live, we live in an age of conspiracy theories. We do indeed. And um, they, they, they're many and varied. We have a rich tapestry of them and they're all as barking mad as each other. But this particular one is interesting because it, it looks superficial, superficially plausible because what people say is that the, the low interest rates, the money printing, the quantitative easing that's gone on has had led to this huge asset price explosion. And it, because rich people are the ones that own these assets, they become even richer. That, as I say, has a superficial plausibility because to an extent it's true because if you look at some asset prices, they've gone up a lot. But when you start digging down into the details, you realize that it would have been a very clever um, conspiracy-minded central banker that would have engineered this. Because first of all, the asset prices that have gone up in the equity market have mostly been in the US. It's far less true of the non-US equity market. If you look at anybody that holds emerging market equities, European equities, Japanese equities, they've been doing nothing for years. Secondly, even if you were a holder of US equities, you'd have had to hold the right ones because there's a vast swathe of US equities that haven't gone up very much. It's mostly our friends, the Facebook, well, not so much Facebook these days, but Amazon, uh, Microsoft, Apple, those sorts of companies that have had the stellar rises. So you'd have had to have been a clever central banker and a clever stock picker to have availed of this decision to try and enrich you. Uh, Where it does get interesting is what you think it means, uh, whether it's been a deliberate policy to raise house prices. Because one of the things about house prices, of course, is that an awful lot of people, unlike the equity market, an awful lot of individuals do own property. And again, it's not everybody. And we know that there is this discussion about whether or not the older generation is benefiting at the expense of the younger generation. So I see this as not so much as an old versus poor, but more an intergenerational thing, because it's undoubtedly the case that house prices, in my view, have benefited enormously from the monetary easing and in particular low bond yields. And I've cited before research that I am very fond of conducted by the Bank of England that says that in the UK at least, and I suspect elsewhere, an awful lot of the price increases for housing over the last number of years can be explained almost entirely um, by the fall in the cost of borrowing. It's not really that much of a supply-demand imbalance, although that factor is definitely important. It's all about low bond yields. So the one thing I would draw out of this is that if bond yields are going up and that continues in the way that I think it might, then we could well be in for a bit of a surprise for what house prices actually do this year and that um, the housing problem doesn't go away by any stretch of the imagination, but we might be surprised by the fact that house prices might start to uh, top out, shall we say, if not if not actually fall. But again, that all depends, as I keep saying, on, on what the cost of borrowing actually continues to do. But the rise in bond yields that we've already seen clearly won't help. Um, the impetus to house prices from falling bond yields, at the very least, is over. So I think that the, the link between interest rates, bond yields, cost of borrowing and house prices is very interesting and will bear very, very close watching this year. Of, of course, it is also the case, Chris, that the quantitative easing, um, through its impact on equity markets, and as you say, US markets, 
totally outperformed European and Japanese markets. But European and Japanese markets have also done reasonably relatively well since March 2009. So quantitative easing actually has benefited everybody who holds equities directly or indirectly. And there are hundreds of thousands of people spread across this economy and indeed spread across the world who have pension funds with equities sitting in them. And those pension funds have performed better because of quantitative easing. Um, and that part of it does not represent a transfer of a transfer of wealth from the poor to the wealthy. So, I think that the, the biggest one of the biggest things you could do for poor people is, of course, to give them some money and the various welfare schemes that we have um, are designed in part at least to do just that but I think one of the smartest things you can do for poor people um, in countries like Ireland and Britain is to give them a trust fund at birth and various governments have flirted with this yeah. idea um, and it, but it has rarely come to very much and I would strongly urge any any government to give every child at birth 5,000 euros worth of equities in a trust fund that can't be touched until they're 25 um, and that would be a, a very good way of enriching um, the, the next generation, actually. Um, but that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a personal view. And that speaks to how you look after people through the course of their lifetimes. And there, of course, has been, we've spoken about this before many times, and we'll continue to do so again, um, about the, the recent pension uh, controversy in Ireland. And that speaks to an intergenerational thing as well. And I saw two articles, one in the Sunday Times, one in the Irish Times, written by our old friend Cliff Taylor, um, about this recent Oireachtas report on pensions. And both of the articles struck the same tone, which is that it is an assault by the older generation on the younger generation. These were quite hard-hitting pieces. And saying, here we go again. The older generation, in my words, um, I'm paraphrasing, they didn't quite say this, but they're pulling the ladder. We are pulling the ladder up behind us yet again. And many podcasts ago, we spoke about this and we got a bit of stick for it. But um, yeah, that's exactly what's happening, isn't it, Jim? Yeah, it, 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 it certainly is. Uh, but, but Chris, go, going back to the earlier discussion about inflation, uh, and you mentioned modern monetary theory or the magic money tree, which I like. Um, that theory does fit the whole populist political narrative globally. There's no doubt about that. And there's no doubt also about the fact that what the Irish government is doing this week or going to do in terms of alleviating cost of living pressures on people. This is being driven by populist politics because parties in opposition are basically arguing and promising they will spend money on absolutely everything and spending that money will solve all of the problems. So the government, as insecure as it is, is responding to this. So it is being driven by this populist political narrative, which... You know, the perils of populist politics, I don't think you could ever um, overemphasize. No, and it's growing all the time. I call it, it, it in, in, in some ways, somewhat um, tongue in cheek, I call it the Father Ted approach to policy making. Yeah. There was a famous episode. Um, gosh, I wonder how many of our readers um, remember, um, listeners remember Father Ted, um, in which they carry the priests of Craggy Island carry placards saying things like, down with this sort of thing. Sort of thing. <laughs> and and, also, in, and in a similar vein, something should be done about this. Well, I mean, the fundamental question of your piece was, what should you do about this? Mm. I mean, it's all very well as a populist saying something should be done, but let's define the problem. Let's ask the question, is the problem amenable to policy? Can we do, can we, is there a lever or a button that we can pull or push that will make this problem either 
less severe or go away? And finally, is this something should we be do- that we should be doing? Because what will be the consequences of pushing that button or pulling that lever on other priorities that we have? So therefore, policy becomes something that's very complicated. It becomes very conditional. It involves people like me saying it all depends. And it involves a grown-up debate and reaching some kind of consensus on the basis of what we know. Instead, what we have everywhere, not just in Ireland, um, possibly not, you don't have it that much in Ireland compared to countries like the United Kingdom and the United States, where populism is full on. You know, that this is what Boris Johnson and Donald Trump are all about. It's saying, I feel your pain. You are a member of my tribe. And the tribalism is a very important part of this. And your pain is something that I can do something to alleviate in a cost-free way. And it's very seductive. Um, the tribalism thing is a nice little add-in to the mix because it speaks to, at the very least, if we can do down the other tribe, even if we can't do anything to benefit our tribe, the fact that we're doing down the, the other tribe makes us feel good. And that's a strong element of the populism. And you can see that in the UK with the continuous assault by Johnson & Co., on the so-called metropolitan elites. You should see what they continuously say about London and Londoners and people who live in the southeast of England. Now, there may well be certain things that you can say about the enrichment of that part of the UK relative to other regions. But if your policies, where you promise to alleviate the pain of the, uh, say, the regions of the UK in this famous levelling up exercise that they keep promising but failing to deliver, If what you're doing is saying, okay, as a result of a very serious analysis of policy, we can do something to alleviate your economic financial pain of being in one of these poorer regions, that's a sensible discussion. But if what you do is that you promise to do that, but what you actually do is damage the economic and financial performance of the southeast of England so that you um, atavistically perhaps make other people feel better because you're doing down the elites, but don't actually do anything practical for them, that's populism. And that, I think, is what populism means. And when populism reaches you, Jim, as I think um, you and I both think it it has, and it will increase with a well-known political party um, promising to alleviate people's pain, but they will only do so by damaging other people, by enacting policies that look superficially attractive, but are poorly thought through. And all they will do is damage the overall economy and it will, the atavists, and I don't think there are that many in Ireland, actually, because you don't have the class warfare thing that goes on in in places like the UK and the US. It's about making people feel better rather than making them better. Yeah, it's, it's, it's also the case. One thing that I think will be really interesting to watch here over the next few days as this package is announced and rolled out, how it addresses the squeeze middle in this country. And last night, after I wrote that piece and put it up on the Substack account. I got thinking about this and I, I should have covered it a little bit, but this is the whole notion of the squeeze middle in this country. Um, you know, we hear government talking about trying to look after the disadvantaged. In their lexicon, this does not include the squeeze middle. The squeeze middle are the people on medium incomes. They pay significant level of tax, significant, not huge, but a significant level of tax. Um, Many have huge mortgages uh, because of the age profile. They are the ones that will be vulnerable to any ECB interest rate increases over the next year or two, if if, if it should happen. 
they get absolutely nothing for nothing. They pay for everything. You know, they pay for their health. You know, they, they so they, they are the ones really that are being squeezed by this cost of living crisis. But the populist political narrative actually tends to ignore that segment of our population. So absolutely. I, I think what we're going to end up with this week is a package of populist bullshit using a technical term. That is a very technical term with perhaps that's where we should uh, conclude this week and, and wait for the comments that we get about this podcast, Jim. So uh, thanks very much for another great discussion and I'll see you next time. Excellent, Chris. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.